it's sometimes hard being a Christian, isn't it? Let's just cut to the chase. It's not always a bed of roses. It really is something that can be quite difficult at times. Perhaps like me, you had a, a well-meaning but rather naive person tell you once that if you just give your life to Jesus, all your problems will go away. Only to find out that's far from reality. It doesn't quite work like that. I've got to be honest, as a pastor, I look around this room and I'm very, very conscious that I see a lot of you here. And I know because of the privileged position I'm in, that there are many of you struggling with some very difficult situations in your lives, difficult trials. And there are people, as I look out, who aren't here tonight because that's the truth for them as well. And they're struggling. My first reaction, very often, I've got to be honest with you, is it's not fair. Do you ever say that? It's not fair. After all, if, as Jesus claimed, the kingdom of God is at hand, then how is it possible for those who are citizens of that kingdom to suffer, like so many of you do? You probably wouldn't be surprised to know that Jesus' disciples had very similar questions when they were hanging around with him. At first, following Jesus hadn't been particularly difficult. Indeed, it was a bit of an adventure. They quite enjoyed it. He's getting up to a bit of mischief. He was doing the odd miracle here and there, winding up the religious authorities. It was great. And then by the time he starts to speak in parables during the last six months of his earthly ministry in particular, the situation had changed somewhat dramatically. People were baying for his blood. And the disciples naturally began to wonder, well, if the kingdom of heaven has come and the ruler of that kingdom, Jesus is here, why on earth is there such opposition against him? You have to remember, of course, the disciples are still looking for Jesus to initiate a physical kingdom. They were absolutely convinced he was the Messiah, the long-promised Messiah who would come. He was going to establish his rule and his reign. He was going to get rid of the Romans and everything would be sorted. And yet here now, He's here, and everybody wants to kill him. Everybody wants to get rid of him. The king of the kingdom. And the disciples just couldn't understand. Why did such evil have such a hold, such power? And that's the issue that I want to look at with you this evening as we look at another one of the parables that Jesus taught. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Linda Harris is going to come, and she's going to read a section of that passage for us this evening. Thanks, Linda. Bless you. The parable of the weeds. So hang on, let's just skip one. Right. <laughs> he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. 
just going to skip a bit now. Oh, I haven't turned 30, have I? Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And now he's explaining the parable of the weeds. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Thanks ever so much, Linda, and thanks for coping with me changing that reading just before the service. I always love that bit, gnashing of teeth. I always remember an old preacher saying once, and if you haven't got teeth, teeth will be provided. I want to look at that parable through the eyes of the servant. So I've started to do this with you the last few weeks and just trying to get a little bit of a, a different angle on things. Because I think if you start to look at this parable through the eyes of the servants, you start to be able to answer some pretty tough questions. And they're, they're questions that many of us might well have as we're sat here this evening. They're, they're questions that the servants w- would have had. And, and I think we, we have them as well. Questions like, why is there evil in the midst of God's kingdom? Questions like, why does Jesus permit evil to remain in the world? And perhaps the most difficult one, what are Jesus' followers to do about evil? We live in a very complex world. We live in a world that is covered with all kinds of wickedness and evil. And it's easy in some ways to come away on a Sunday evening and lock ourselves in here and do our thing and then go back into the real world and by Wednesday, I don't know about you, but I'm sort of looking at the news and stuff and I'm thinking, flip me. The reality of the world in which I live in and sometimes what we do here on a Sunday are poles apart. And the world is quite literally going to hell. And there are things happening, and you wonder, how can human beings behave like that? And if God is sovereign, why on earth is he allowing that to continue? And I want to explore some of that with you this evening. This is tough stuff, but I think, uh, hopefully as we study God's word, we'll get some answers to some of these, these key questions. 
if you've got a Bible, why don't you open it to, to Matthew chapter 13? Because I think this is an excellent little passage of Scripture. There's a pew Bible on the end of each pew. Just turn it over to Matthew 13. If you've got an app on your phone, open that up as well. You know, just the question, first of all, that the servants asked the master once they saw the weeds appear in the field. Now, this is a critical question. Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Now, any gardener knows this paradox. Yes, I'm no gardener, you know that, I've been quite honest with you, but we did a bit of gardening the other day, tidied up things at the manse. Wonderful. Flip me. It doesn't matter what you sow, it doesn't matter what nice plants you put in, weeds. And some of them apparently are not weeds and should have stayed there. <laughs> That's another sermon illustration for another time. But it's a very interesting question. Didn't you sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Now I ask that question all the time and you ask that question, but this is a serious question. How on earth does that happen? And I think we need to deal with several elements in this parable to start to understand what's going on here. First of all, Jesus tells us that the master in this parable, if you skip on to the end bit that Linda read, you see the master in this parable is none other than Jesus himself. It's very important that we see that. The phrase that he uses is the son of man. That's the most common term that Jesus borrows from the Old Testament to refer to himself. So he wants his listeners to understand, absolutely understand, his Jewish audience, as they hear this being taught, he wants them to understand, this is me. I'm talking about me. The title comes from Daniel chapter 7, where it's used to describe the Messiah, the king of an everlasting kingdom. Now, that's the first thing I think is important. The second thing is this, and perhaps the most important element in this parable, it's the identification of the field. Now, have a look at your Bibles closely and follow through. Although Jesus clearly tells his disciples what the field is, I'm amazed how many people miss that when dealing with this parable. So, here we go, a bit of interactive Bible study now. Who's going to be brave enough? According to Jesus, look closely now, in your Bibles, according to Jesus... What does the field represent in this parable? The world. Are we sure about that now? Yes, where are you getting that from? Verse 38. Well done. Okay, verse 38. The field is the world. Why is it then that as I was preparing this week and a few weeks ago as well, so many commentaries use this parable to address the issue of evil in the church. I find it quite astounding, really. Or indeed, in the life of an individual believer. There's no doubt that it is important to deal with sin in the church, don't get me wrong, and in our own lives. But that's not actually what the focus of this parable is. So let's just get the context right here and understand what Jesus is talking about. This parable is about evil in the world. That's very important. We're going to see in a few moments why that is such an important distinction. The third thing that I want to draw your attention to is we see that what the master, Jesus, sows in the field, the world, is. What does he sow? He sows the good seed 
which is the sons of the kingdom. Verse 43, the righteous who will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now, we could spend ages tonight just going through that. I mean, that's just an amazing idea. I just want to point out three important points for you. Uh, people become sons of the kingdom totally as a result of, as a, of a work of Jesus in their lives. You can't become a son, you can't become a citizen of heaven or the kingdom of God as a result of your own efforts. Please understand that. You can come to church as faithfully as, as you do. You can take communion umpteen times. You can be a very, very generous giver. But it will not make you a citizen of the kingdom. You will not be a child of God just by doing those things. You need to understand the only way that comes is a result of God's grace. Not, your, not any merit on our part. And so we need to surrender ourselves fully to Jesus. The second thing I think we need to see here is that righteousness... The righteousness that these kingdom citizens possess is not a righteousness of their own. It's not a righteousness of their own works. It's a righteousness, as we used to say years ago, that Jesus has imputed to them. That's a great word. He's imputed it to them based on their faith in him alone as the basis for that uh, righteousness. So Jesus takes these sons of the kingdom and he sows them into the world. That's the important thing. Now, remember to hold that in the back of your noggins, okay? Just hold it up there. He takes the sons of the kingdom and he sows them into the world. This parable is not a picture of the world in the church. Okay? This is a picture of the church in the world. Vital that we see that, particularly as we're halfway through, more than halfway through now, our Connecting Together series on Wednesday nights. If you've not already been part of that, I really want to encourage you, come on Wednesday evening, come to Connecting Together, see how we can take the good news of Jesus into the world. We are called to go into the world. That's the critical thing here. Jesus sows into the world. So the picture here is that God chooses those who are to be citizens of his kingdom. He makes them righteous through faith in his son and he places them into the world for the purposes that we're going to see in a moment. Finally, before we can answer our question as to why there's evil in the world today, let's think about these servants for a minute. Although in the parable it's the master, the son of man, who actually does the sowing, those who heard Jesus tell this parable were very aware that in the culture of the day, of course, in first century Palestine, it would actually be the servants who'd sown the seed. The master would call them and tell them, I want you to go out today and plant some seed in field number three. You know? And he'd tell them, and under his direction and oversight, they would go. So when the seeds germinate and begin to grow, and there's found to be weeds among them, they're naturally worried that they've done something wrong. So Sarah tells me to put geraniums in one part of the garden. But weeds start appearing. Now she's going to look at me and think, well, Percy Thrower, you've done a good job. Is she? No. And I'm going to think that she thinks I'm incompetent, which I am, but that doesn't matter. 
So the servants here would also be thinking like that, that they'd done something wrong that had caused these words, uh, weeds to pop up. They hadn't prepared things properly. They hadn't killed off things properly or whatever. And it certainly lines up with the concept of sin and evil in first century Judaism. That's the context in which we're talking here. This, this isn't 21st century. Now, we've got to go back. We've got to see what's happening here. In the worldview at that time, if you did something wrong, there were consequences. So you remember, for instance, when the disciples met a blind man in John chapter 9, do you remember what they said to Jesus? They asked Jesus, who has sinned, this man or his parents? There was something wrong, therefore something must have happened to cause that. That's the way they thought. Here it is in John's Gospel for you. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Who got it wrong? Who got it wrong? Who is to blame for the weeds in this guy's life? The horrific things that have gone wrong. Now, come into our modern day. I wonder, honestly, how many of you sat here tonight think this way. I mean, many people who think that things still work this way. We question whether our trials and our difficulties are perhaps God's punishment for some sin in our lives. Now, don't get me wrong. Scripture makes it very clear God does discipline us when there's unrepentant uh, sin in our lives. But let's be honest. Most of the time, that's not why we suffer at all. Most times, as this parable points out, we suffer because we live in a world that is wicked. We live in a world where there is evil, where bad things happen to good people. That's the truth. That's the world in which we live. But why? Why is that evil present if we're living in the midst of God's kingdom? Well, this parable answers this question. And the answer is very, very clear. There is an enemy. The evil in this world is neither from God, from God, nor is it the result of anything that the servants have done wrong. The evil is there because there is an enemy. So, you know, you might say I'm a bit... But I honestly believe that there is an enemy. I believe in the existence of a very real devil and uh, his demons and his cohorts. And uh, you, you may think that uh, that's fanciful or whatever, but... I think based on the authority of scripture and what I see in the world today, I, I, I'm absolutely convinced of it. See, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, has both a physical and a spiritual aspect to it. Right now, only the spiritual aspect of the kingdom is manifest here on earth. So in the physical realm, the devil, who Paul calls the prince of the power of the air, has been permitted by God to sow evil in this world. And you look around and there's plenty of it going on. He's rampant, isn't he? Whether it's mass shootings in America or the atrocities that are seen on the Syrian-Ugandan border or what's happening in South Sudan, we see it all around us. We see it in the child abuse cases that are uh, uh, on our headlines. We see it in our own families. There is wickedness. The devil is busy at work. That's what's happening. 
That truth naturally asks us to ask a second question, one that's also answered in this parable. Well, why does Jesus permit that then? There is an enemy, that, that's what, what's causing it, there is an enemy, but why? why? Why does he permit that? It's not fair. If we are followers of Jesus, Jesus has overcome the enemy, so, so why, why do we have to be exposed to that? Why does Jesus permit evil to remain in the world? Now many people have attempted to answer that question. Perhaps one of the best known efforts was in a book by uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner. Any of you read this book? Fascinating little book, written uh, by him in the, in the 80s, if I remember rightly, when bad things happen to good people. And he wrote that in response to the serious medical condition his three-year-old son was having to go through. And here's what Kushner came up with. He, he was a well-respected rabbi. It's summarized quite well by the title of chapter seven in the book, and this is the title. He says, God can't do everything, but he can do some important things. His basic premise was that God, though powerful, wasn't, was powerful enough to create the entire world. He is, however, not powerful enough to prevent evil. Is that, is that the case? Is that, is, that, is that true? He sincerely believed that. That's why there's evil in the world, he said. That's why bad things happen to good people. Because God is not powerful enough to deal with that side of things. Well, come with me back to this passage. This passage totally refutes that idea. This, this passage wants us to understand that's not the case. One day the kingdom that is now only spiritual will become physical and spiritual and you read through those verses, if you've got your passage open in front of you, on that day Jesus is going to return to this earth, he's going to gather all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, he tells us, and he's going to throw them into a place of everlasting punishment where there is weeping and teeth will be provided. That's what it says. God does have the power to destroy evil. Let's just rest on that for a minute. Some of you lived through the atrocities of the Second World War. Some of you remember the massacres that have happened between Hutu and Tutsi. Some of you have seen the devastating things that have happened in the name of people like President Assad in Syria. The horrible things that happen across our world. If God doesn't have the power to deal with evil, we are stuffed. So if we say that he has got the power to destroy evil, the big question remains, why doesn't he do that right now? Because I'd like him to. Wouldn't you? I'd like him to. Well, the master in this parable answers that question in responding to his servant's desire, you see, because they want to do whatever he could well, not good gardener. Every gardener like Mark Owen wants to do. The moment I see something rogue growing in the garden, I want to rip it up. Which is why dahlias come up with dandelions. And who knows what else. The master in this parable answers the question. Look, look at what happens. God in his infinite wisdom understands that if the evil weeds are uprooted right now, the righteous wheat is going to be harmed as well. 
And in that process, some of the people God has chosen to be sons of the kingdom would be destroyed. I love the way Peter answers this. Uh, he talks about in 2 Peter chapter 3, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's a very, very important scripture, isn't it? Very important, because suddenly this has a bearing on you and me. In agriculture, it's not possible for a weed to be transformed into wheat. They haven't come up with some miracle potion to be... Wouldn't that be lovely? Wouldn't it? No more roundup. You know, just something that you sprinkle on everything and turns it into marigolds. Wow. Can't happen. In the spiritual realm, though. In the spiritual realm, it's different. In the spiritual realm, you and I were once weeds, and we've been transformed, transformed into wheat by the work of God in our lives. I don't know about you, but I am very, very glad that God is patient, and his judgment was slow, because I would never have survived long enough to experience his grace if it wasn't. Because the danger is, you see, that we rush in. And we think, oh, well, that's wrong, I love that, and I love that, and I love that, and we rip up everything. What if God had done that with you? What if that first time you did something wrong, that first time you looked, off, looked at somebody else the way you shouldn't have as a married man, the first time you pilfered something from work, the first time that you, you said something that you shouldn't have and something dodgy came out of your mouth, or the first time you thought wicked thoughts about somebody, what if God at that moment had said, I've got you? Well, you wouldn't be sat here right now, would you? God is patient in carrying out his judgment because it's his desire that as many as possible will be saved. Hallelujah. Thank you for your patience, Lord. Indeed, Peter talks about it and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. I know my natural response to evil in the world is just like those servants. I want to get rid of it, and I want to get rid of it now. God says, whoa, 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 whoa. And I think about all the people I know in my own family, and in my community, who are still sons of the evil one. And I realize that getting rid of evil right now would also mean that none of those people will ever have an opportunity to become sons of the kingdom. Looking at things from that perspective helps me understand oh, so much better why, why, at least for a season, Jesus allows evil to remain in the world. Do you see it? The answer, patience, means salvation. This parable answers one last question, the one that's probably most relevant for us, and it's this. What are Jesus' followers to do about all this evil in the world? Well, before we answer that question, let's go back to what we were saying earlier. The field in this parable, remember, is the world. The world in which you and I live. It's not the church. It's the world. And the clear teaching of Scripture in numerous places in the New Testament, including the words of Jesus himself, is that as followers of Jesus, we as the church have an awesome responsibility to confront unrepentant sin within the life of the church and evil in the world. We 
cannot sit idly back while the world goes to hell. We have an awesome God-given responsibility to speak up and to speak out. Let's face it, we're a lot like these servants. We see evil in the world around us and our initial reaction is to want to uproot the evil. But the master's response to the servant reveals that's not what we're to do. Just in case, in gathering weeds, we root up wheat along with them. The advice we're given in this parable is you let them both grow together until the harvest. Now before we can fully understand what Jesus is teaching here, we need some further background. The weeds in this parable, here they are, they're called bearded darnel. You grow them in your garden? Well, I grow something similar in my garden because I'm telling you now, some weeds are very pretty. And if you're not a keen gardener, it's easy to confuse weeds with flowers. And this is the problem. In the early stages, these plants look so much like wheat, indeed they're often referred to as false wheat. You see it in other parts of uh, nature. What about fool's gold? You know? Sarah's quite a lot of that, but there we go, it's a different matter again. By the, plant, by the time this plant develops enough to be distinguished from the wheat, the problem is, well, the problem is the roots have already become entangled, and if you pull out the weeds, it will destroy the wheat. So the advice Jesus gives is you just leave the weeds alone. I'll take care of them, he says, at the time of harvest. Now, why would Jesus give this instruction? Well, I think the parable shows us very clearly why. First of all, it's nigh on impossible for us to distinguish the wheat from the weeds. Now, just stop there for a moment. It's nigh on impossible for us to distinguish the wheat from the weeds. What makes you and I think we've got it all right? Because I don't know about you, but I am so tainted by sin, the truth is I often make the wrong call. I don't always get it right. And that's the problem, isn't it? I'm hardly in a position to judge others. Besides, only God is capable of differentiating between the wheat and the weeds because only he can discern the heart. So from our perspective, there are some people who deserve to be uprooted, but from God's vantage point, they're people that he loves and he desires that they will come to repentance and become sons of the kingdom. And only he knows who will ultimately choose to do that. Thank God for that. Secondly, it's God's plan for us to live in the world in the midst of evil. Please hear that. It's his plan. It's his plan that you and I go to work tomorrow and live amongst people who have no regard for God who are not interested in the slightest the fact that you and I took communion tonight or sang hymns or enjoyed fellowship together or any of that or even looked at this parable. People who are foul-mouthed and whose lives are very, very different from ours. God wills it that you and I live amongst them. That parable confirms what we found elsewhere in Scripture. We aren't here by accident God has planted us here for a reason. We're reminded of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, aren't we? As you sent me into the world, I've sent them. 
So if you're struggling in your workplace, know this, God is with you. And people may be potty-mouthed. And there may be all sorts of things going on. Stick with it. God has placed you there. He doesn't call us to isolate ourselves from the evil in the world. There was a move many, many years ago that we should come out and be separate and have nothing to do with people and, and all of that. He never called us to only associate with other believers. Flipping heck. Can you imagine how boring that would be? You and me? Day in, day Oh, my gosh. We're not to be separated. We're not to live some monastic life. Some people have felt over the years that's the only way to cope. Well, good luck. No, we're not to engage in all of this evil. That violates the third reason we're going to take care of the weeds, let Jesus take care of the weeds. But we are called to live in the world. But God has called us, you see, to be a righteous influence in this world. Not to judge it. Although this parable approaches how we're to deal with the evil in the world from a negative aspect and instructs us very clearly on what we should not be doing, fortunately, there are tons of bits in the Bible, tons, that teach us how we are to interact with evil in the world. So what do you do when you come up against people who don't think the same way as you? How do you respond to them? Well, I remember those words that Pastor Tim was drawing our attention to some months ago. And it struck me there in Matthew chapter 5. That's how we're to live, isn't it? Do you remember Jesus called his followers to live as salt and light? It's a beautiful picture of how we're to be influences for good. That's what it's all about. We're to have um, an influence for good in the midst of evil in this world. Salt and light. Our lives are, are, are to flavor and preserve and illuminate this wicked world in which we live. Now, there are times when we're going to have to speak up, and there are times when we're going to have to speak out. Of course there are. There'll be times when he'll call us to preserve righteousness. But he doesn't call us to judge. He doesn't call us to judge, because there's only one judge. And we dare not usurp him. Now, when you take all of these things into consideration, my friends, I think we can summarize the answer to our question about what Jesus' followers are to do about evil in the world like this. The answer is simple. Treat people with compassion, not with condemnation. Unfortunately, the church has a heck of a reputation, often well-deserved, of being holier than thou, of being judgmental. Far too often we've been ready, even eager, to go out into the fields and label people as weeds so we can begin to rip them out, cast them into the fire. Whoa, 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 whoa. In many cases that has brought great harm to the cause of Christ and to those who are sons of the kingdom. You know your history well enough, don't you? You know that from the Crusades to the Spanish Inquisition to the rule of Bloody Mary in England to the contemporary practices of racism in North America, even in South Africa with the apartheid movement, all of these things perpetuated by people who claim to be followers of Jesus, who thought they knew what was right, who were ready to judge people of a different ethnicity, color skin, got it badly wrong. One of the most effective tools that critics of Jesus and his followers have at their disposal is to point at the atrocities that have taken place throughout history by those who attempted to root out evil in the name of Christ. Please, God, we don't behave like that. 
life as a follower of Jesus sometimes isn't fair. But not in the way we often think about it. I want to tip that on his head as we finish this evening. Because I've been challenged by this in this past week in my own life. See, what isn't fair is actually that any of us are permitted to be sons of the kingdom. That's not fair. What isn't fair is that we can have a relationship with a God who is completely holy. That's not fair. What isn't fair is that the suffering we experience in this world today is only temporary. And that the eternity God has prepared for us will be free of pain, free of suffering. That's not fair. Believe me, none of us want what is fair. Because if we wanted what is fair, that means that certainly I, and quite possibly many of you, would still be sons of the evil one, subject to God's sure judgment. No, life's not fair. And praise God, he doesn't treat us fairly. We shouldn't desire what is fair for those who are currently sons of the evil one. Like God, we should look on them with compassion and mercy and do everything we can to love them into being sons of the kingdom. Praise God that he and he alone has acted in grace and in mercy to us. It isn't fair that I have been able to welcome Jesus Christ as my Lord and Saviour. It isn't fair that I get to be forgiven for all the stupid things I've done. It isn't fair that I don't now receive God's wrath and judgment and eternal damnation for the wrong I've done. It isn't fair. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Close this evening. I think it's fitting. We just take a few moments to meditate on what God has done for us. And thank him for making us sons of the kingdom. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 writes some beautiful words. Do you remember these words? You, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he has shown us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. In Christ Jesus not fair it's not fair hallelujah it's not fair